Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Now, as promised, we are bringing you more Sweet Bergamask, this time starting in order with Movement 1, appropriately titled Prelude. Woohoo! And if you missed it, our last episode did feature the fourth movement, which is the finale, sorry, as we decided to look into that before we did our whole mini-series here. You may want to go back to that episode for that historical context of this entire piece if you missed it, because here we're jumping right into the music. So let's go. But first off, a small bit of correction from the previous episode, because we said last time that all the movements except for Claire de Lune of Sweet Bergamask were dances. And that's not actually true, as the prelude here is also definitely not a dance. However, it is based on the Baroque form of a dance suite. These collections of dances often featured a prelude as the first movement as an introduction to the rest of the suite. So, although not a dance itself, the prelude is a key part of the dancing. I'll say time and time again, I can't dance unless there's a prelude. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the ABBA song was about, right? You can dance if there's a prelude, you can jive if there's a prelude. That's how it went, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. So the prelude was meant to sound a bit more improvisatory overall, which this movement definitely does. It starts with a large octave leap and then a few fifth leaps in the bass hand, which are focusing on F and C, as we are in F major, so kind of honing in on that tonic sound right away. Before ending on a minor two chord, which is G minor. This chord is actually pretty versatile. It can resolve almost anywhere it wants to. So let's listen in to see where it lands today. That's right, folks. After essentially a bunch of passing tones as these running 16ths, we resolve back to the tonic of F major. Over the next two measures, even though the 16th notes in the treble play essentially the same pattern, the bass chords start moving upward. From the tonic, we get a major 4, inverted minor 3, minor 4, finally resolving on 4 again. However, you'll notice this doesn't really have a minor sound to it, even though there are a lot of minor chords being thrown around. That's because WC uses a lot of appoggiaturas and passing tones in the treble melody that are masking this underlying harmony. This phrase now reaches a high point on beat 2, which is an unlikely candidate for such emphasis, and that is with a B-flat major 7 chord. Normally, seven chords are five chords that resolve to whatever their tonic is. For example, the B-flat is the five of E-flat, not F. However, we don't actually resolve there to E-flat. Instead, we kind of have two different harmonic resolutions at once. The low B-flat and high A are holding over, 
while the middle two notes step downward to make the harmony the minor three. Now, the B-flat doesn't fit in this chord, even as it's seventh. Actually, it's an eleventh, if we want to classify it. Wow, an eleventh? An eleventh. (laughs) But since it's a really low note, and it's being held, and forgotten about, honestly, perhaps we can just call it a pedal tone, and also forget about it. Debussy does not forget. (laughs) But he wants us to forget. The next measure here, though, really shows the Baroque inspiration for the piece. It sounds quite a lot like a Bach invention or fugue or four-voice fugue, but it is absolutely not in fugue form. This features four different lines, essentially two moving parts for each hand, with 16th notes in the different voices filling space while others hold. Before we finally get to resolve back to the tonic F with the octave jumps again. Wow, that was just the first 20 seconds of the piece, and we are already five minutes into this podcast. There's a lot here, obviously. There is. But luckily, the next little bit is just a slight harmonic variation of the first few measures that will actually then lead us into the next section. And this next section features some nice parallel third movement, which is more traditionally acceptable than parallel fifth movement. And these thirds then open up in contrary motion to triads, with the treble trending upwards and the bass going down. After a repeat of that theme, we get into a more introspective section rather than the previous section that sounded kind of like an invention. We also get some little triplet sinks teeth note decorations that sound like the traditional Baroque embellishments. As a side note, I really like to draw these parallels between the Baroque improvisatory sound and the impressionist improvisatory sound (laughs) where they both have all these little frills and embellishments but Mm -hmm. even though the Baroque ones are actually sometimes more improvised often more improvised um, than the impressionist ones they still sound more rigid if that makes sense yes I mean, if we're thinking like fugues or inventions, obviously those are written out. They're not fully improvisatory either, Um, but they they were a bit more strict with their music for sure. Indeed. (laughs) The next section is in the relative minor key to F major, which is D minor. It also kind of reverses the upward bass notes heard from the very beginning of the piece where here there are wide intervals in a slightly syncopated rhythm, but this time they are going downwards. So it's not an exact copy, but it seems to be a callback to what has already been heard. And since it's minor, it just kind of makes sense that it would go downwards instead of upwards, right? That's a law, yes. Because <laughs> downward is sad and minor is sad. 
But next, we return upward with some flowing 30-second note runs. In the music, these are written as if they were decorations. However, since the notes are specified and change with each run, it does affect the harmony. The notes we hear are not quite scales since there are skips, but also not quite arpeggios since there are stepwise runs. Though they are not exactly the pentatonic scale or the whole tone scale, the unexpected skips give the impression of these sounds that Debussy was so famous for. We get his signature watercolor or dreamlike quality shining through. The next idea after this gets back to the Baroque, again in more of a mimic of the fugue or invention. We have the top line playing a sequence of 16th notes, the middle two lines playing different tied 8th notes, and the bass playing just quarter notes. So technically four different voices again, though there's not quite as much contrary motion as Mr. Bach might have used. But remember, sequence is still king. And this part ends on a change of harmony. We have changed to B major, not a key in F major since there's actually a B flat in F. But it's a bit more likely if we're still thinking in the relative minor key of D minor, but even then it's a modulation to the major six, which is a little unusual, but maybe it's just WC being WC. And WC continues to be WC through this sequential theme, going through the circle of fifths from here. If we started in B, the next key should be F sharp. Well, we get F sharp diminished, so <laughs> close enough. And after that, with just a slight change from a natural to a sharp, we get a half diminished 5-7. which should resolve to B major again, which it kind of does, but it could be minor though, or back to the key of D, but there's a B in the bass that tricks the ear into thinking it was resolved where we wanted it to be. All of that. <laughs> and then with an upward scale, we're back to a repeat of the A minor section. Again, there's a, a lot in a little that Debussy does here. Every little beat, or even every little eighth note beat has some change of the harmony to make the majors minors and vice versa. So sorry if all these B's and D's and F's and everything are all confusing, but trust, Debussy did yes. it on purpose. <laughs> if you're able to get a hold of a copy of the score, it it really brings it all together for me, I think, mm -hmm. because you can you can look at all of these dense black notes and you sort of explode them in your mind to understand how they all fit together. <laughs> right. Or sometimes if you just like see like, oh, here I'm playing this with an A, but then I go up to an A sharp, like obviously everything else is the same, but I'm changing it just you know, a little right. bit. You know, you can see it better on the page too, but also listening to it's good. Hence why we're here. Yes. <laughs> so this section's ending does change up a bit. 
In the last measure of the phrase, we start out with an A minor chord on beats one and two, but then with just a simple change from C natural to C sharp, we hear goes right into that A major sound. This new key again has no real relation to our home key of F, however the change from a parallel minor to major is a very good trick for modulations, and with that it does make perfect musical sense. Following this little resolution however, there is a bit of stop and go in the music, like the melody is breaking apart. And it actually takes us back to A minor. The A major was a fake resolution. We come then to a section that mimics some of the things we've heard before, but is written completely differently. There is contrary motion in the treble and bass once again, and some upward scales and thirds that turn into full chords, much like we heard toward the beginning of the piece. However, these scales are a lot longer, with Debussy really inviting us to appreciate the effect of the thirds. And this effortlessly flows into the next section, which simultaneously has a lot happening, go figure, and also not much of anything at all. Mm -hmm. First, there is a repeated upward eighth note line in the treble that is syncopated with ties in the first measure that starts on A, but in the second measure starts on G. Then in the bass, there's a tied whole note chord of B flat and F, and in the treble, also a whole note D and F, so a B flat major chord. However, in the next measure, the treble notes change to E and D flat, so now we have a very expanded chord, a very open chord. If we were to stack these in order, we would have E, G from the treble eighth notes, B flat, D flat, F. It's a diminished 13 chord, meaning the 13th scale degree, F, is being played. Now, of course, this isn't a traditional chord in thirds, but it's quite common in jazz, and the Impressionists of the time quite liked these jazzy sounds. Finally in this section, there are somewhat random sounding groups of staccato eighth notes jumping octaves in the bass, just from F to F, again reinforcing that 13th scale degree in the second measure. This is all then repeated in a different and unlikely key once again, this time with adding some diminished downward eighths in the second measure of the phrase. Now, as we're rounding out towards the ending of the piece, Debussy drops a little of the improvisatory pretense and brings back some material that we've actually heard before. Between each measure, he actually alternates between two different previously explored ideas. Mm -hmm. 
all the while crescendoing towards a grand restatement of the opening. To round out the finale, Debussy writes a passage that sounds a lot like a cadenza. In larger pieces like concertos, a cadenza is an improvised or quasi-improvised passage to showcase an artist's technical skills, rather than any real melodic material. Here there's a long sequence of 16th notes, followed by these whooshing up and down scales, very technical indeed. leads us into the coda. We hear the melodic motifs that have been explored before, but they aren't really driving forward anymore. Rather, they quickly resolve back to the F major tonic. At this point, we're not going for development, just honing in on the home key. The final cadence is then a 4 to 1 rather than the more common 5 to 1, with a tonic chord played on the downbeats of each of the final two measures, but in different inversions each time. Uh, again, a nice, lovely movement from Debussy. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's often talked I love analyzing these impressionist pieces because it's often talked about like their we mentioned earlier their watercolor quality, right? Mm-hmm. But like what does that what does it mean? And how is that achieved? Mm-hmm. I think as we talked about before or earlier in this episode rather, like with the very subtle changing of the harmonies, it's yeah. you know, kind of like the blending of the paints together and like one right. color goes into the other and this one it's like the harmonic color easily mixes with the other. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of describing it. Because all of these little changes are so intentional. Right? Mm-hmm. They're so intentional, but they, they disappear behind the overall, well, the impression that the piece <laughs> generates in the listener, which I think is very cool. Mm-hmm. And going back quickly as well to our last episode, when we mentioned that Debussy took a little bit of inspiration from Sweet Bergamasque from the Commedia dell'arte of Italy, and how we were saying each of these movements really does have kind of its own character that you get right from the beginning, but it's his impression of it. So, you know, we were talking about all the different Baroque influences here and how there are like little measures that's like, oh, is that Bach or is it Debussy? And so that's the character that we have here. We understand immediately what this piece is supposed to be and what he was going for. And so we don't have the pretense of like, oh, what is this? Like, it's a prelude. Right. We know. And so then we get to enjoy what he's doing with it instead, because we have that previous Baroque knowledge already in our head. Yes. And if you want some more Baroque knowledge directly piped into your brain parts, <laughs> uh, go back and check out some of our previous episodes on WC. And of course, our most our most recent one on uh, the fourth movement of Sweet Burger Mask. Um, and do you consider sharing them with friends, family, colleagues, or randos on the street that you think that you would like that, that you think would like our particular brand of analysis and shenanigans? And perhaps since this is going to be a form 
five-part series again, by the time you've shared it with the rando that you found on the street, it won't be a rando anymore. You'll have yes. a new friend. You'll have a lifelong friend in Sweet Burger Mask. <laughs> and if you do form lifelong friendships, be sure to tell us about it in your review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever it is you get your podcast. Every time we get better and better at this, 186 <laughs> episodes in. Oh my. And until 187, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The prelude from Sweet Burger Mosque was performed by Jacobo Salvatore. You can find The Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook at The Coffee House Classical Podcast and Instagram at Podcast Coffee House and emails at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.